Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the podcast, uh, The Psychologist, where this week we have with us Tamika Harris-Jackson from the University of Central Florida, and we're going to be exploring Amsterdam and what happens um, when you bring 16 students to Amsterdam to study human sexuality, uh, race, culture, a bit of history about Holland here. Um, So this week I had a chance to sit down with Tamika Harris-Jackson. What I do is I lead educational trips kind of all over uh, Europe uh, in general, but not only Europe, uh, also different parts of the world. And so um, I decided to make a podcast to kind of uh, show what I've, I've been doing um, because I've been lucky enough to get to go on a few of these really interesting programs. Um, this one this week uh, was incredible. Um, got to sit down with uh, Professor Jackson, also another student, um, just to get their uh, perspective and some of their perceptions from the week on uh, this interesting program that we've uh, put together for them here at the psychologist.org. Uh, so, um, yeah, have a listen. Um, this is my first podcast ever, so uh, not sure how good it went. There was some background noise in the cafe there. Um, there were some moments where I stumbled over my questions and things like that. Uh, so I hope you'll forgive that. But this is the first of what I hope to be many of uh, such episodes. Um, this just happens to deal with um, human sexuality and uh, culture like I said, uh, the red light district and how that is able to happen here in Amsterdam. Um, It's not a subject I knew a lot about before I led the first one a few years ago, Um, but since then, this is uh, now, uh, I've led a couple of them, and so uh, I've become interested in the topic, not only in this topic, but there are other uh, topics we'll be exploring over the course of this uh, podcast as well, too. So I've had a chance also to lead some people that are um, into urban planning and city design and mainly in providing like good cycling infrastructure and making cities um, for people instead of uh, for automobiles. And so um, that uh, look forward to that. If you're living in the United States, there's going to be a big push uh, to make cities a little more people friendly in the future uh, from some of the experts that I've met that are coming over to Europe um, to learn how those things are done. So, um, yeah, there should be a lot of different interesting topics throughout the course of this podcast. So I hope you like it. I hope you stay tuned. Um, other trips that I've done uh, are 
international law trips here to Holland, um, international business trips. So I hope to kind of uh, bring you a few different um, specialized trips. Uh, they'll explore a particular area about a culture, something that makes it exceptional. Uh, why is it uh, that Amsterdam sticks out as this liberal place that um, has always been good at business, good at trading, and uh, what makes what makes this the place where people go to is when they think of, you know, um, wh whether it's been the legalized marijuana, if it's been the prostitution, um, uh, in general, just why can that exist here in, in this country? And so we examine a lot of uh, these things, um, the different topics that we'll be discussing here on the psychologist psychologist uh, dot org. So uh, hope you enjoy it and. This is uh, episode number one. Thanks for listening. All right, uh, and we are live. Uh, so first off, I'd like to thank you, uh, Tamika Harris-Jackson, um, for coming uh, yet again to Amsterdam and uh, bringing the students with you and having such an amazing uh, journey uh, exploring some of, something a little bit about uh, human sexuality, um, gender, race, and how they do things uh, here in the Netherlands. So uh, thanks again, and uh, thanks for joining me. Sure, um, my pleasure. So yeah, first off, uh, I'd like to know, like, what was it that made you uh, decide to come to the Netherlands in the first place? Like, what got you interested? Sure. Well, it was about ten years ago, and I came to the Netherlands from, I was in my doctoral program, and they were having a study abroad trip to the Netherlands. And my doctoral program is, was in human sexuality. So we came here, and I instantly loved it. I loved the juxtaposition of how the Netherlands explored and approached sexuality um, compared to the United States. It was much more open. It was much more um, overt and it was diverse. And it just was completely contradictory to what I had experienced um, growing up in the United States. And so I vowed that when I had the opportunity to take others, I would, and that's what happened. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and I had kind of a similar experience here myself as well, uh, having moved here. And just uh, the way the society felt a lot more open you know, in general. And, in some ways, I found that very refreshing. It's, um, mm -hmm. It wasn't like a closed uh, door. It was a fairly open subject, and it felt like you could talk with anyone about it. Um, and how that it's also like just kind of in your face uh, when you walk around the streets here in Amsterdam right. as well, too. Um, which, yeah, I think you know anyone who's been uh, to Las Vegas, it's, it seems to be more like behind the scenes, or yes. you know it's there kind of a thing, but here it's like, oh, we seem to admit, uh, we know what's going on, uh, so we're just going to put it out um, for you to examine it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, I find that like a, a refreshing approach um, in many ways too. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, my experience has been that when you kind of keep things behind the closet and you make it taboo, people are much more likely to engage in risk in order to obtain whatever that is that is that they're not supposed to have according to society standards. 
when it's much more open, I, I get the sense that there's less, not that there isn't any risk, but there's less risky behavior involved because it's available and so it's not as taboo. Exactly. And I kind of see that uh, as well, uh, not only with uh, sex or sexuality here, but also as far as um, soft drugs are concerned, I see that exact same effect taking place. Like, uh, because here in Holland they have a very liberal approach uh, to soft drugs, mm -hmm. I feel like it's not as big of a problem uh, with teenagers here. I feel uh, from the people that I've spoken with, it seems like they try it when they're a teenager, mm -hmm. and then afterwards, well, either they maybe they, they like it a little bit, or maybe they don't like it at all. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't seem to be like as uh, as in, as sort of involved in uh, daily life for a lot of the people here as it could be. I don't know from what I've noticed in the United States. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually agree with that. Walking around. It's just so open, it's so available. There isn't the judgment that comes along with it. And so I just don't see the negativity and the negative behaviors and the reactions that I see in the States. And so someone may be openly sitting on the corner here at a cafe, smoking, and everyone's just walking by. And there isn't this cast of judgment or taboo about it and for those who are advocating um, for policy change in the states around medicinal marijuana use it is such to me it's such, such a contrast and there are people who are struggling trying to get access to marijuana for health just for health um, and here it's just it's just open and available for whoever needs it however needs it with, with not much explanation behind it and so I think with that, again, the freedom that it, that it allows here in Holland just creates a bit more relaxation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think with that, what I've experienced is that you walk around feeling a bit more free. You don't feel, I haven't felt here, um, any sense of danger other than watching when I'm walking with bikes, <laughs> you know, but other than that, no sense of, you know, the danger, people lurking, um, people in need, and the desperation that goes with a lot of the um, chronic substance abuse and, and reaching out for people who are who are in need at home, yeah, in the States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from my experience as well, too, it seems like because it is available, the teenagers here will try it uh, as a teenager mm -hmm. and then formulate their opinion. Most of them end up not really liking uh, weird. There are some people that really do, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them, uh, yeah, they can feel too weird or something. Mm -hmm. so, and then they know it's available, they can try it whenever they want again. But um, yeah, whereas in the States, uh, yeah, they don't have that availability. and so. And there's sort of peer pressure. Yeah. Around, too, perhaps, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, different outlook, uh, different philosophy on how they um, present that here. But uh, to me, it seems a little bit more open, honest, and maybe even a little bit healthier mm -hmm. uh, for the society. Yeah, well. that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, so, yeah, I also uh, wanted to ask you. Uh, 
so what do you think, uh, because we've had a few educational visits uh, throughout the week, mm -hmm. uh, what to you has been kind of one of the more impactful visits uh, that we've had this week? Wow. Um, I think one of the more structured, impactful visits that we had was the visit to that combined the Homo Monument with the presentation from um, Willie and Chris mm -hmm. around sexuality or homosexuality and Christianity in the, in the Netherlands. I think that they did an amazing job going over the history of the Dutch. That was, that was so important to put it in context. So I think the students, along with myself, learned so much just about the history. And then when they went into talking about how the history impacted how they moved forward in their more progressive or liberal approach to being inclusive and affirming of the LGBTI community here, it with Christianity, with religion, I thought that was amazing. And at the same time, they recognized that they weren't a utopia. So they didn't present it as if they had reached perfection, but they did recognize that they were, they had a level or degree of advancement over other places around the world. And so I think it was a beautiful demonstration of how people can start working together around differing values. Yeah, exactly. Also for me, I think that was one of the more impactful uh, visits as well. And, um, a lot due to the, uh, the historical aspect of the uh, presentation as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, the Netherlands, having gone through like its golden age in the 16th century, uh, 17th century, uh, experiencing a large growth, having a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, but learning that uh, they did things a lot differently than, than the British uh, did. I found it interesting to, uh, to hear how the Dutch resolved uh, their conflicts. So they were much more prone to uh, uh, talking things out in yeah. conversations. Uh, whereas the Anglo-Saxon approach uh, from England was more about um, the law and uh, using lawyers to settle conflicts. Yeah. Um, and it seems to have stemmed from their struggle against the water. Uh, because here in Amsterdam, we are below sea level. Mm -hmm. um, they had to kind of get together. They had to form a consensus. They had to make these uh, develop a plan. Um, and a lot of times, it was kind of life and death. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so it's interesting how the two uh, communities kind of evolved separately in that regard. Mm -hmm. And also that uh, the pilgrims uh, who came from England left England uh, because. They didn't have the freedom that they wanted um, uh, for their religion in England. Right. Um, here in Holland was basically the only place in the world that you could go to uh, to experience true religion, uh, religious freedom at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but then they also found it uh, too liberal. Right. Well. Right. And so then the Pilgrim Fathers, who uh, eventually came to America to set up the original Pilgrim colonies, mm -hmm. uh, would have left from Holland, which. Um, I don't think many people know that. No. That was so enlightening for so many of us, myself included. Um, we absolutely get the information about the settlement of people to what we now know as the United States of America 
coming from religious persecution and wanting freedom, but we missed that piece of that that kind of middle point when they made it to Holland and found it too liberal. So that was absolutely fascinating, and it made us think. It made me and many of the students think: What would have happened if they decided to stay here versus going to the United States? How would we look differently? And it also helped us to have even a, a better, a broader understanding of how we as the United States are developed the way that we are, um, our laws and policies and so forth. So, yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, I, I found, um, found the exact same uh, experience with that uh, presentation as well, too. Uh, uh, yeah, kind of shifting gears just a little bit, uh, we also visited uh, this week uh, Rutgers, uh, which uh, is kind of in charge of establishing the policy um, of sexual education here in the Netherlands. Uh, mm -hmm. They develop a lot of the resources uh, that teachers will use uh, to teach their classes. And yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, the approach uh, the Dutch use towards um, uh, educating uh, uh, their the, the children here and, and how you uh, find that approach. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have to be just very clear and blunt and say that I'm completely biased because um, just because of my background in social work and as a sexologist, I'm 100% for comprehensive sexuality education. And that's because based just on the research, we know that comprehensive sexuality education has greater positive health outcomes, not only for the individual, but for the community, um, than abstinence-based education or curricula, for instance, or, or even abstinence plus. There are some curricula that are like that in the United States. And here, what I saw with Rutgers is that they took the full comprehensive sexuality education approach. And it was, it was absolutely wonderful. The curriculum, what they talk about, and what I thought was even better um, is that to really have a, a solid, a true, comprehensive sexuality education program, it has to be infused in it throughout a, ser a period of time. You really can't give the full breadth and depth of what's needed in a semester or a term in school. It really has to go along with individual development because we're developing our minds, our bodies are constantly in development. And so the education we, see, we receive has to go along with that. So what we learn about ourselves and our bodies at 10, for example, even how we receive that information is completely different than how we receive and understand that information at 16 or 17 or even 21. And so what I appreciated about Rutgers and how they do the approach is that they start, so they have curriculum at least, that start early. Um, they talked about that some people here even start at the age of four. And so it starts early, but then you see it matriculating throughout um, the, the development, an, an adolescent, a teen, young adult development. And there's information that's appropriate at every age, and it's inclusive. And so it addresses sexual diversity in the fullness, not just talking about the LGBTQ plus community, but it talks about sexual diversity, about also understanding values and morals and faith and um, 
engaging with people who have differing abilities. It was it was truly what I think in the states many of us who are advocates for comprehensive sexuality education what we aspire to go toward in our own school systems. So it was wonderful to see. Yeah. Once again, I, I also completely agree with uh, with your assessment there. Too. Um, and yeah, growing up in the United States, uh, not having uh, any information about um, sex education until I think it was maybe sixth or seventh grade, which I don't know. Yeah, you're already kind of changing at that point. Some people have already changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, yeah, it's better to um, start earlier, like they do, and like you said. Like the age four or five, the basics, nothing too in depth. But uh, yeah, um, being open and honest, I think that um, eventually later on that promotes uh, a less awkward environment for discussion. Yes. Which yeah. uh, it seems to be, in my uh, experience, uh, it's not an awkward discussion to have. Um, to talk about sex here in Holland, mm-hmm. and uh, that coming from another culture where it's kind of almost a taboo subject, mm-hmm. uh, it's, 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 it's refreshing, and it's, um, yeah, I, I also can kind of appreciate and, and learn from that, uh, those discussions as well, too. Yeah, awesome. Um, and one thing I, I didn't really talk about, but uh, um, I haven't brought up uh, so far since we're here mm-hmm. is the fact that um, a lot of parents here uh, actually know when their children are having their first uh, sexual encounter and actually ah. invite um, in many cases uh, they will invite uh, either the boy or the girl over to their house mm-hmm. um, uh, have a dinner with them and then uh, set them free to do uh, what it is and have a, a night over Really? A lot of times provide uh, prophylactic, um, uh, but they'll, in in that way, they, uh, it's completely different. You would almost never uh, hear about that experience um, in America. You know, I think most people in the States, yeah, most parents wouldn't know when it happened uh, to their children, but here, in many cases, uh, they, they do know. Yeah, um, a lot of that times, is amazing. Yeah, a lot of times it's in the back seat of a car in America or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, I think it is almost a better approach. Um, you know where your child is, you know the person, uh, who they are. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend who uh, told me his first uh, encounter, which is kind of a funny story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was invited over to uh, the girl's house, and uh, he was, I think, 15 or something at the time, maybe 16. Um, they were began to watch soccer uh, on the television. He was getting into the game, but quickly, five minutes later, uh, the woman, uh, the, the young girl, uh, was bored and said, "Come on, let's go to my room. Let's go to my room." He's like, he was just a little bit. Felt a little awkward, you know, because the parents were there. Wow. Um, but uh, finally, eventually, he did get up and go to the room. And uh, the brother, right as he's closing the door, said something like, Don't get any on my sheets or my Oh my bed. gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Yeah.
so um, intersectional, so the theory of intersectional, intersectionality really came from um, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and a black identified African American or, or African American woman who looked at or who talks about the fact that marginalized identities, specifically women who are African American, um, having these marginalized identities in a space and trying to figure out essentially, well, some people say you, you're welcome in this space as a woman but not as a person of color, and other spaces as a person of color but not as a woman. And so that's that intersection of trying to navigate the multiple marginalized or um, disenfranchised identities, those identities that are constantly discriminated against. So that's what intersectionality is all about. And so um, in the state, in, in a nutshell, but um, so in the states, navigating my environment as an African-American, a woman of color, um, just multiple identities that I carry on my own, there are many environments where it's, it's quite difficult and it's quite evident um, what part of my identity is accepted and what's not. And those areas where my identities are accepted, for example, being a person of color, if there are other people of color in that space, there's a gravitation towards one another. If there are women in that space, there's a gravitation towards one another. Um, but there's also the feeling that part of my other identity may not be welcome. So sometimes it's, it's very difficult to navigate. Um, and, but living with it your whole life, you learn. Coming here, I find that it's quite different. So, um, for example, being a person of color, that doesn't mean that there's going to be a gravitation towards other people of color. I've actually seen that it, sometimes it's quite different, that there's a moving away, and it's more about where I originate from as an American versus someone from another country. And so some of that I've just kind of noticed and observed, which I think is amazing and unique within itself. Um, as a woman kind of walking down the streets in, in the Netherlands, there's a different experience as well. There isn't, you would think by it being um, known for the red light district and women and so forth, that there would be this catcalling and stuff that comes with it, but it's not. Um, again, in the States, walking as a woman down the street, there's a 90% chance or greater that there's going to be catcalling involved, there's going to be something said to you that doesn't happen here as often. It does, it's not like it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen as often. So, yeah, so it's been different, nav it's been um, an interesting experience navigating these identities that carry in other environments. Yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting to hear your perspective um, on that as well. And we also heard from uh, Dr. Weck, uh -huh. who uh, gave a talk to us about um, her perspective on uh, race here in the Netherlands. Yes. Um, uh, how did you feel about her presentation, or um, was it enlightening to know? Uh, because she touched on a lot of structural uh, racism that a lot of probably Dutch people don't seem to be aware of. Yes. Um, which I would probably tend to agree uh, from just uh, an outsider perspective as well, too. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just your thoughts on, uh, on what she had to say. Yeah. 
Dr. Wecker was amazing and refreshing and enlightening because she also brought to light some of the, what some of the students mentioned, some of the microaggressions that you do see here, or as she indicated, macroaggressions, like that they're very overt. Um, so while I talked about the fact that there isn't this gravitation necessarily towards seeing other people of color here, um, it is evident you do still feel the subtlety from, um, from some people here about you are as a person of color and you know it's about that so for instance um, this week I was in a store and I'm just walking around in regular clothes and there are other people in the store who are walking around in clothing that shows that they work there but I'm in just regular apparel and a woman approaches me and asks me how much something is and I'm, I just <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out you know I couldn't figure out why she thought me because I'm literally in regular street clothes right <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, now that kind of was one of those feelings of, nah, okay, that's similar to what would happen in the States kind of thing. Um, and it's one of those things that unless you've experienced it, you wouldn't know. Someone else may explain the way like, oh, they could have easily thought. But when you've lived in your body and your experience for a while, you know when something is what it is. Um, the same thing about when you're on transportation here. There's, you still see the slight movements um, from people who might who appear to be here versus visitors. So you still see some slight movements or, or things like that, movements away. So there are some subtleties. And when Dr. Rucker spoke, it, it was affirmation, that feeling that, ah, okay, yes. So it is present. It's just that in the states where we call it and we name it, here, it's not spoken about. It's not talked about. It's very hidden, and it's. Um, she talked about white innocence. Her book that is just kind of walking around almost with the privilege of being innocent, naive to the fact that racism does exist. And so I think, as in the United States, we're a bit more advanced in that we are willing to call it what it is. Um, but we have a history that's built on that, so we can we can name it. We can call it what it is. I think. For the Dutch, their history, they're so proud of their inclusiveness and their um, ability to be affirming of so many people that there might be shame and guilt around um, acknowledging the fact that, that there is racism that is here, that there is xenophobia that is here. That's true. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a lot of that, I feel like it stems from the early days of Dutch uh, imperialism and Dutch mm -hmm. colonialism uh, during the times um, that they did have that golden age and they were out um, kind of conquering or um, settling uh, other nations. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the young people, I guess they don't really teach it that much uh, here in school, but they don't know much about the history that uh, the Dutch were actually big in slave trade. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems to be almost forgotten uh, in some ways. And in some ways, uh, also, I talked to you a little bit about this earlier, but it almost seems to be a part of their philosophy um, here in Holland, that everything is supposed to be 
Pazelic, which is like this comfortableness, a coziness, things aren't supposed to be really awkward. And so mm -hmm. uh, when you bring those facts up, uh, it suddenly gets awkward and uh, they want to change the subject. And mm. um, a lot of people, um, I mean, that's kind of a convenient way to forget about it, but in some ways, though, I also do feel like a lot of people are over it. They don't want to, they don't want to think about it, but then I guess perhaps they don't realize that there is probably some structural um, racism going uh, yeah. on here in the country as well, though, too. But, um, it is kind of this Dutch philosophy, it seems to me, that, um, yeah, you're, you're just supposed to concentrate on the, the positive or the, um, the aesthetics, the beautiful surroundings that you have. Um, everyone's supposed to dress up sharp and, um, um, yeah, mm. night out is always supposed to be convivial and um, fun and um, they don't yeah. like, well, I guess sometimes they don't like it if you bring up some, uh, something about the past, especially most people are very uh, nationalistic here, they, they okay. love the country. Okay. Um, so if you bring up a, a sore subject, you know, um, maybe they'll bring up World War II or something like that, where they did have to suffer. Ah, um, okay. I like what Dr. Wechter said about how, well, at, along the same time, they were also kind of uh, going to war with Indonesia. Mm -hmm. uh, in another, you know, in colonialists um, trying uh, to hang on to that colony mm -hmm. for themselves as well, too. And so yeah, it seems to be a little bit of a double standard. Um, and yeah, most probably Dutch people wouldn't like uh, hearing about that, but I think, yeah, so, uh, maybe it's time they do. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, yeah. We've had this dialogue in the States now, I think, uh, a few years longer than they have. Yes. Um, probably 40 more plus years uh, of dialogue that we've had in the States. It just seems like they are kind of beginning um, that conversation. And there are some political groups that are here starting um, on, just, on just that policy uh, alone. And so, uh, yeah, they're being confronted now, which Good. I don't think they have in the past. And, uh, I mean, a lot of times you can present uh, this country as being kind of like a perfect representation and they're always doing things correct but yeah there are some other there are some factors that well, they could do better on and i think yeah. that's uh, a lot in the way of you know when people travel um, it's good to share these ideas uh, there's a lot to learn from Holland, but then also there's some things maybe that they need to learn as well too and so these cultural exchanges that's one of the reasons that I like to travel uh, in mm -hmm. general, mm -hmm. and uh, to, to be a part of these educational trips as well, too, mm -hmm. is that kind of cultural exchange and uh, sharing of knowledge, uh, which seems to have happened at almost every meeting uh, so far that we've had with uh, the local people, Yeah. Uh, as well uh, at the Nemo Museum uh, right. the other day, mm -hmm. which uh, I'll explain just briefly for uh, anyone listening. is. Uh, their science museum, but they have a very kind of open, and honest, and direct um, display for uh, young uh, people, mainly in their teens, um, about uh, health and sexuality. And uh, we took our students there and uh, had, had some other uh, great exchanges with uh, the presenters and shared ideas about um, future developments for the program as well, too. Mm -hmm. And I know, yeah, you've touched a little bit on uh, how the Dutch uh, deal with education, but uh, could you comment a little bit 
about uh, the Nemo Museum? Yeah, yeah. So I think the Nemo Museum is a perfect, um, for anyone who would be visiting and doing a similar trip like this, trying to expose students to understanding sexuality in areas abroad, I think the Nemo Museum is a good, clear example of the Dutch approach. And I think it's a really great way to culminate the trip because what I appreciated there is not only the exhibit, the exhibit, but seeing the students, the other students from the area. I mean, it was children all over the place and seeing them interact with the information. Um, and then there was teachers with them, um, parents or guardians with them, and they were in that process with them. And that was great. You didn't see them pulling them away or covering their eyes. And, and at the same time, you saw some similar behaviors that you see just from youth everywhere, of uh, giggles and um, some of the male presenting youth were kind of daring each other to go into some of the spaces and the, the um, female presenting youth were giggling and with each other paired up and so you see the universality in all of it but you also see this very unique Dutch approach to um, sexuality and sexuality education and even on their top floor so you had the third floor that had this exhibit and that was very open and the youth can kind of go on all floors of course but it's kind of open in their learning then they go to the floor above the fourth floor and there's more information that and, and it's, it's again comprehensive sexuality it's not just about an act of sex it's not just about these basics but it's talking about values um, and skills around sexuality so they talk about kissing a skill great ways to kiss poor ways to kiss um, they talk about values and they talk about drug use and risk behavior and then you go to the top floor and they talk about feelings and um, space and safe spaces so there was an exhibit where you can test out what is um, a comfortable space for people to be into you and versus the intimate space and I just thought that was wonderful um, and they also we were just talking about Dr. Wecker and race and ethnicity they also had an exhibit on the fourth floor that asked you to ask the youth to figure out which which door to go into um, this was a door for white people only and this was a door for um, colored people only and the youth had to choose which door to go through and then there was an exhibit talking about what that meant to put that all together in a science museum, um, again, I just, I just think it shows the progression, at least that in many ways the Dutch are going to where they are um, and where they're going towards. So, I, to, again, I think that was an amazing culmination of just everything we had talked about on the trip to end with that was great. Yeah, no, I agree, and um, I think the students also uh, really saw that universality, and um, I think it was, yeah, it was good for them, and I also want to touch on that about, uh, because you've been making them uh, take uh, a journal? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, this whole time, and yeah. could I ask you a little bit about like how that's been going, and have you seen some of them, uh, some interesting uh, discussions and that growth? Yeah, absolutely. One of the best things um, about the journals, and I would encourage anyone who's doing a trip with students, an educational trip, 
um, I would really encourage them to each day have a very purposeful educational reflection opportunity for the students because they will always harken them back to why they're here which is really important. Um, sometimes students can get really excited about, oh, I'm in Amsterdam. And if they don't have anything to do um, that brings them back to the education of, or the purpose of the trip, they can lose sight of why they're here. So that's why I have them do the journaling each day. And I review that. And um, what I've found is that not only do they enjoy the educational outings, but it's also the experiences they have outside of that, where they're engaged with the locals. Many of them ask questions of the locals. They go to other um, things like the sex museum that's here, other shows, just many other things. Um, and they learn a lot and reflect a lot from that. And so I've learned a lot from their journal experience by seeing what has moved them gotten them to reflect, to go deeper, what has excited them, what has shaken them. Um, it's really helped me as their professor on this trip to see best ways to push them for growth safely um, and where I might need to push them, meaning challenge them, and where I may need to kind of pull back. So for me, I've seen that a lot, really ensuring that they have space okay, in future okay. trips to engage with the locals is going to be really important because that was that was just an amazing experience for many of them and it's happened at the same time with my last group so making sure time is built in for them to do that is just as important as the educational um visits and, and such that we have right yeah and it's also um, a great souvenir for them to bring back with them as well too later on you know to look mm -hmm. back and to reflect on well, because as we both know, travel it brings upon uh, uh, change in mentality and right. to actually kind of document that and to see, you know, maybe a, a change in idea. It's, it's interesting and to mm -hmm. have a, a reference for that, um, to look back on. Yeah, that's great. And yeah. uh, that was something I also did in some of my early travels, too, was did a lot of journaling. And, um, yeah, I think it's a, yeah, a great idea and a, a great uh, approach. And, also for them for the future for them to have that and to look back upon as well too. yeah yeah great uh, cool so yeah we're uh, about to kind of wrap things up here uh, I'm just gonna look over to see if I have any more uh, pressing questions that I uh, wanted to talk to you about here as well uh, oh yeah uh, I did want to ask you because uh, you are looking uh, to per perhaps uh, come over here to work or to mm -hmm. um, spend some time Abroad, yes. Uh, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, what I, um, and I was even thinking about it even more last night, is what I feel will be really important is to immerse myself a bit more in the culture. Um, because there are some things that in the presentation of the information, it's you lose some of the nuances. For example, like you talked about um, your friend and how pretty much 50-50% of people here had that experience of telling their parents or guardians about the first time. That's something that didn't come up in a presentation, but it's because it's such a norm, probably, 
that it's not something that's not about to be discussed. But that's something that would be so critical for my own awareness as a professional as I'm constantly thinking of ways to enhance and enrich the education that I'm giving to students back in the States. As well as I also consider myself an advocate for um, sexual, comprehensive sexuality education. And to be able to see, not only learn what's happening, um, but be an active part of what's happening. My hope is to come back and be engaged in leading some workshops, observing workshops, engaged in some of the teaching that happens, um, and then observing how that's incorporated into the culture on a day-to-day basis. To be able to take all that and take that back to the states and be able to help in areas where we see risk is so high in many areas around sexuality and talk to people about here's how they use it, here's, here's what's working, here's how it works with some cultures because that's also really important to note that in some cultures in the Netherlands that may work and some it may not and so what are the different approaches that are used I just, I have such a passion, I want to return and be able to immerse myself in that for a little bit of time, take that knowledge back and be able to enhance the content that I'm currently delivering and enhance my advocacy as well. Wow, that's awesome. Um, That made me think right there, like I was just curious, uh, what is your vision for the future, Uh, what is your utopia um, for a place to to live as far as um, the content we're dealing with? human sexuality, Mm -hmm. what would be the sort of ideal world um, uh, in your mind, I guess? Yeah, wow. Um, In my mind, a utopia would be where each day an individual who wakes up um, where they are, they feel complete and whole and wonderful just as they are every single day when they walk out of their door, when they wake up and they look at themselves in the mirror, they feel wonderful regardless of what they're, the skin that they're in, the body structure that they're in, who or how they're loving, um, whatever. That when we walk the streets, when we maneuver the streets, when we maneuver our daily lives, we feel amazing, great, and whole just as we are without feeling that we're trying to aspire to be someone who we weren't born to be. That's my utopia, yeah. Wow, um, to me, yeah, that's, that's a perfect note, I think, to end on. Like, um, it's a great vision of the future, and uh, I know, yeah, for me as well, I think I, I totally agree with that, and um, yeah. And I think, I really feel like uh, these types of programs uh, help get us, you know, one step closer at a time um, to get that other perspective and to, yeah, consider another idea. And, um, so it's been great and i uh, really like to thank you once again for coming over to Holland and uh, allowing me to help out uh, with uh, the visits as well too. And, allowing me to be a part of the discussions and also to learn uh, from the class as well too. So uh, thank you very much and uh, looking forward again to uh, working with you in the future on on such projects. Likewise, thank you. This wouldn't have been possible without you, Adam, so thank you. Well, uh, I'll disagree with that, but uh, thank you so much for saying You're welcome. Uh, Great. Thank you. You're welcome. And so that was my 
discussion with uh, Tamika Harris-Jackson. Um, we were in a cafe there, and so at times there were, um, you know, dishwashers um, doing their thing in the background there, some waiters, there were some um, clients coming through, um, but perhaps it led to a little more kind of authentic experience, hopefully. Um, I'm not the greatest interviewer yet. Uh, that was my first real interview, and so they're only going to get better from here, I'd hope. And uh, so, yeah, uh, it was interesting after uh, listening to that conversation that uh, the red light district didn't even come up as far as a topic. And that was um, one of the things that came to Amsterdam to study. But in fact, it didn't even come up as things that were like the most impactful um, to either uh, Professor Jackson or the student, uh, Alicia, which I got to talk with. Um, and you'll be hearing that interview um, coming up right after this. Um, and so you can see that there are a lot of uh, interesting things. And when most people think about Amsterdam, they think red light district. Um, but once you get here, you realize that there's way more to the city than that, way more to the country than that, um, especially after talking with uh, some of the experts that we got to talk to this week. And it's been a real eye-opening experience, I think, for everyone involved and um, hope to bring you a lot more of these. Um, if you're interested in uh, taking one of these types of trips in the future, uh, head over to thepsychologist.org, and that's C-Y-C-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. Um, I spell a little bit different, like a bicycle instead of um, the, uh, the one that helps you out with your brain. Um, or your problems, I should say. So, um, yeah, head over, head over to thepsychologist.org if you're interested in taking more an in-depth um, look at an area of one of the cultures that you're interested in. Um, because that's what we're all about here. We want to take a further look into, into the society um, that we're going to. Um, you know, we all know the stereotypes of each of these places, but... Uh, Turns out you can learn a lot more from these these places than than just the stereotypes once you kind of dig into it, and uh, so um, yeah, uh, stay tuned. Here we are for part two. This is Alicia Sproul, uh, who is a thirty-year-old student that came over is going to be doing her completing her master's um, degree in social work and eventually going on getting a, a law degree as well too. Um, but very uh, bright student, had a great chat with her, and a uh, great trip overall with uh, the students of University of Central Florida. Um, so here's that interview. Thanks for listening. Uh, cool. So yeah, I'm going to just dive right in here. Okay. Um, uh, so first off, I'd like to thank you, uh, Alicia, for joining me. Uh, you've been a part of this group. You're also, um, I would say, a very respected and uh, value member of the group with your opinions you're always uh, presenting uh, in my mind like very uh, hilarious responses and um, uh, great viewpoints um, during a lot of the meetings that we're having and so yeah I thought it would be kind of fun to just get you get some more opinions and um, background information uh, about you and and some of your thoughts that you've had um, while kind of traveling and studying uh, abroad here in Amsterdam yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the first thing I would like to ask you about is uh, 
how did you come about this program and um, what uh, got you interested in this uh, um, study abroad experience? Well, um, honestly, I started um, a student at UCF, which is in Orlando, Florida, and there was a flyer, and that was it. A teacher handed me a flyer, and this summer I am turning 30. I'm calling it my renaissance. And when I realized in January that I had the opportunity to go to Amsterdam, I thought it would be just amazing to start my trip there and kind of expand. Um, so it was really the combination of a teacher as well as a desire to travel in my 30s that kind of made this a perfect opportunity. Uh, that's yeah. That's kind of how I first started as well. I saw a flyer. I got interested in traveling, and for me, it definitely changed my life. And um, so, had you traveled much before this experience? Uh, okay, I don't know if I'd call it traveling. So I've done cruises, um, and, I, and the reason I kind of hesitate to answer whether I've traveled. So I've, I've been to Jamaica, I've been to Cancun, I've been to Nassau, and, and yes, of course, that's traveling but it's the American traveling. So when I'm in Cancun, Mexico, everyone speaks perfect English and everyone understands what I'm saying and knows English sarcasm. Same thing with Jamaica, same thing with Nassau because it's so focused to these American English tourists that I didn't really get a cultural experience. I wasn't part of the culture. I was like on basically South Florida. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been to a few of the places that you mentioned, and yeah, it does kind of feel like America Junior or America yeah. Light or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in some regards this is kind of the first um, culture maybe you've been to that is uh, very, very different and not a kind of catering to uh, the American crowd. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I remember one of the first things I experienced when I got here. Um, was a glare. Not that people are rude here because actually people are wonderful, but it was a bike person and I didn't cross the street at the right time because I'm just not used to bike culture. And every on all of my other travels, if I made a mistake because they were so focused on making sure I felt comfortable as an American, it was always, oh, I'm so sorry, it's my fault. And I got glared by several different people on bikes. And being from Orlando, I know that tourist glare of you're not from here, please leave. And I, this is the first time I was like, well, this is a real cultural experience. Yeah, that is true. Um, I didn't think about that, that uh, you are from a, a touristic town. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you can probably identify with uh, the people here because I know the people that I uh, know from Amsterdam, uh, they also, they have that, they're a little bit sick of tourists because I, I see it a lot. All the time, yes. Mm -hmm. You're the reasons that our roads are so long. Like, when I want to go home, I have to avoid the touristy areas mm -hmm. or I will be trapped in two-hour traffic. And that's the exact thing that uh, friends from Amsterdam will, will talk about it, is that uh, there's so many people, when I ride my bike home, I just want to get home, and I'm, I want to be done with work, but always having to avoid the tourists and all that. So, yeah, yeah a very good observation. Um, and uh, So, yeah, so could you tell us a little bit more uh, uh, about your background, like where you're from and your, uh, your working as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised um, on the east coast of the United States in a state called Maryland. Um, and it's very nice. It's actually a really liberal state as well. So um, in America, we have like the north, which is slightly more liberal, and the south, which is conservative. Um, and so I grew up very much with two very loving parents. I'm African-American. And so I grew up culturally being raised Christian. And when given the opportunity to move south, I hate the snow. So I ran as fast as I could to Florida. Um, and I went to college, started there in 2005, uh, graduated with a degree in business marketing and a dual minor in theater sign language, as well as studied 
in sales and I had this sales career and I was all about making $100,000 before I turned 30 and I hated it. It was absolutely awful. I hated being so focused on money that about four years ago, I ended up doing something called AmeriCorps, which is a lot like the Peace Corps, but oh, America. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was in Miami for a year working with at-risk youth. Um, did a second year of AmeriCorps in Orlando and then actually stayed working at the school I'm at. So I ended up starting off as a math tutor and then actually took over a classroom of seventh grade at-risk youth um, in a Title I school. So my kids are in poverty. Um, because it's Orlando, I didn't have a lot of gang violence, but I had drugs, abuse, sexual assault, and so teaching those kids math, and uh, a lot of my kids were on the third grade math level, so that was very challenging. Um, and I did that while being a full-time student. So I would do 13-hour days. So Monday through Thursday was just 8.30 to 9.30, I was busy. Um, my weekends were solely focused on homework, so I was just nose down. So this is another reason why I'm so excited to be here is because this is the first couple of days I haven't had insane amount of work. I actually, we flew out or I flew out, I got up at 4 a.m. in the morning on Saturday. I worked on Friday. Wow. Yeah. No, uh, I um, often thought about doing something like the Peace Corps or the AmeriCorps. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your experience with that. Like, um, it seems like that definitely uh, impacted your life. Oh, absolutely, and, uh, absolutely maybe even change the course. It sounds like you're now studying um, social work just because of that as well, too. Yeah, I, um, so I, I am a social work major now. Um, I started full-time uh, in the fall. I definitely attribute my desire to do social work as part of my AmeriCorps. Um, I grew up comfortable, is what I'd call it. Uh, so with America, you have a lot of ranges of wealth. So you have the very, very Donald Trump level rich, and then you have the, I don't have $10 in my checking account poor. Um, and we're all in the same place, sometimes in the same city. And so I grew up where my family and co-op was half a thousand, or half a million dollars. It's kind of what I grew up with. And so with AmeriCorps, you're forced to live at the property line. So I had to live off of 12,005. Um, dollars and so that really forced me to understand what property looked like and helped me become less judgmental because in many ways I interpreted that you were poor by choice um, and that more understanding of how these people in many ways are hardworking, intelligent, but aren't always given the same opportunities that you're given when you come from a more affluent neighborhood. Um, really inspired me to want to not only do social work, so I'm looking at clinical social work, but I'm also looking at doing law school afterwards. Um, so once I finish with my master's degree next summer, um, I'm actually looking to go to Georgia State. They have a part-time law program, and I'm planning to study criminal law um, and get certified as a clinical social worker in the state of Georgia because I really want to focus on child advocacy and trying to find a way to really help those, especially those in poverty, find a way to really not only function well in our system, but also thrive because I don't really feel like we have set them up for success. Do you have uh, a vision of what or how that could go about or how that could be done? Uh, in many ways, it's one of those things, the more I work on understanding the problem or the issues surrounding poverty, the more I understand that there's so much more to understand and it is complicated and like, for example, we've had a strong spike of those incarcerated in our, in our system in America, which is a very scary thing, especially because our, our prisons are privatized, meaning that we have big corporations who make money based on how many people are in jail. Mm -hmm. And there's, um, in Miami-Dade, where I did my AmeriCorps program, is a, a, there's a mega prison there. And that prison will look at my middle schooler's test grades and then decide, do projections on when they need best. So there's an aspect that we have in our system, people who are looking at middle schoolers' failures as an opportunity for them to make money. 
Um, and when you take that into consideration that people make money off of poor people's failures, um, and then you couple that with those people making money are extraordinarily wealthy, have the ability to use lobbying, and can come in as a hero, if you will, saying we're taking all of this off the backs of American government, we will take care of it, you'll write us a check, and we'll handle everything else. We're finding that we're losing a lot of art programs, a lot of extracurricular activities, a lot of education programs. So you're sending somebody, like I said, my seventh graders are testing around a third grade level. So if they end up in prison, you have somebody who's struggling with reading, struggling with writing, struggling with math, struggling with behavior, and then getting no support in jail and then forced out of the system. Um, so in many ways, some of the goals that I have as far as how do I help is a, focusing on one thing at a time. I think sometimes when you get into social work, you want to fix everything. Mm. I love puppies, but I can't focus on puppies and children, so I'm hoping that somebody else will want to save all of the puppies for me. Um, and so I love all kids, but I'm focusing on American children. And there are children trapped in prostitution and trapped in drugs, but I find that I'm more passionate about working with kids who have drug addiction, prostitution, poverty, and prison system. Um, versus there are kids who are extraordinarily wealthy who have very, very difficult home lives, and they struggle as well, but I want to focus my attention on, on poverty. So I guess on how to go about fixing it is just as a citizen and as people, if we all just took one thing to really focus on and really did everything we could to help trying to move the ball forward with that issue, I think we could see a lot of growth. That was actually one of the things I loved about being here in the Netherlands is learning about the history of their democracy and, mm -hmm. and learning about how culturally they had several different types of people and clusters, if you will, um, especially during World War II, and how those groups, um, when they no longer had their leader, they had to come together. They were forced to come together. They were forced to work across the table because it's the only thing they knew. It was the only option they have. Um, so I'd love to see us do that as well in America, although we are very, very large and very, very stubborn. That is true. Now, uh, and I was uh, struck by your, some of your comments like earlier in this week, and it had to do with uh, education at a young age um, about the topic that you're studying here, um, human sexuality, um, sexual education as well. Uh, some of your comments about uh, discovering for the first time, like, um, oh, maybe you want to say it. Oh, no, yeah. You know what I'm talking this about. This is fun. Uh, so I was mentioning that the first time I ever saw a condom was right before the boy put it on. Um, and the realization that I wasn't sure he put it on right. And I didn't get pregnant, obviously. And so it worked out. Um, there was even a time during the first time that we were having sex that it broke. And he knew it broke, and I had absolutely no idea that it broke, and he got out, and he had to put a new one on. But it's stuff like that that we, in many ways, are culturally encouraged to not talk about. Mm -hmm. So sex is something that you should either be ashamed of or do behind closed doors, but you should never talk about it. And as I'm watching this museum, as we're coming around in Nemo, I'm watching instructions on how to put a condom on. And I even saw this YouTube video because of it, the states are so regulated and it varies. There was one uh, coach, an athletic coach, who literally explained how to put a condom on to his boys by putting a sock on his foot. And in many ways, I think the worst part is that that was also my first introduction on how to put a condom on. Like my introduction was YouTubing something for a class and watching this guy put a sock on because no one ever taught me how to put a condom on in school. Um, and my father definitely wasn't gonna have that conversation with me and my mother, even though I date guys and uh, she kind of always assumed I'd married one, it never occurred to her either. So there's an aspect that we are so adverse to having anyone talk to our kids about sex, but we don't talk to them about it as parents either. Mm -hmm. So then you have situations where you have people about to have sex who don't know how to put a condom on. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there was another comment um, that you talked about as well uh, that also struck me, which uh, uh, I'm blanking now, hold on a second. 
Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. I remember what it is now. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, at your, uh, your job and at your work mm -hmm. um, relating to that topic, uh, you also had mentioned you were not able to even give advice about how to yes. uh, put on a condom or condoms in general or just uh, not a topic. Absolutely. So, I, um, so at first it's important to understand, too, that I'm not actually a teacher. Um, so I was hired on at my school as a math tutor, and they had a teacher who was struggling in the classroom because, again, my students have very severe behavioral issues. And this particular teacher, although was very well-meaning and kind, had a very difficult time explaining complicated math concepts to seventh graders who were at a third grade level. Which again is a very complex, like, I taught a student what her one-time tables were because she had no freedom of reference. Um, and so there was an aspect of it that they made me what's called a program assistant. So I'm not actually a teacher, I'm just a glorified sub who did way too much. Um, but because of that relationship, I was able to do a lot of relationship building that other teachers couldn't do. There were some things I could say to the students that, because I'm not really a teacher, were as bad. Um, and I had one student who I built a relationship with who came to me and told me that she was convinced she was pregnant because her period was three days late because she had sex the day before or two days before, a week before. And I had to explain to her that a three day late period, A, probably means you're not pregnant and B, if you just had sex four days ago, there's no way for your body to even really, the odds that your body's even aware of the fact that you were pregnant. And um, since I've been here, a question that I realized I'd never thought about before in the States was, do my kids have any sex education at all in middle school? Because I've noticed that none of my kids have health on their schedule. And I know my kids' schedules because I've been looking at it, and I don't actually think that anyone's ever taught them how to use a condom. And as far as am I able to tell them, because we have very strict rules and parents have to sign waivers to allow their students to learn any type of sex education in the school system, I can't tell a little girl about a condom. Right. I, I, I can't explain to her about safe sex. Wow. Um, and so, truthfully, I did anyway. Um, I didn't tell her how to put one on, but I told her that she knows better and she should be wearing one. And I told her that she was definitely too young for sex because she was 13. Um, but if she felt like she was ready and she trusted her body, then she needed to take care of her body like an adult. Because if she was going to engage in adult activity, then she needed to behave like an adult. Um, and in many ways, one of the things I loved about the Nemo experience, it talked about romance, it talked about crushes, it talked about all of those feelings because the young lady who had sex um, had sex because the boy in question was being made fun of for being a virgin at school. Oh, and when I brought her in and we talked about it, I asked her some questions and I basically helped her to understand that middle schoolers lie. So there's a really high probability that all of the kids that were saying they had sex also hadn't had sex. So there was an aspect, and this was her first sexual experience with a boy, there was an aspect that she kind of lost her virginity because other kids were making fun of somebody at lunch. And it wasn't that she necessarily liked this boy, this boy was just moving. So there's very much an aspect of, because we've made sex so taboo and something you can't talk about, mm -hmm. that I have children having unprotected sex and making decisions based on rumors that are unfounded. And then I'm not even really permitted to help correct those rumors. And so, uh, in your time here so far in the Netherlands, uh, have you kind of discovered or learned about any ways that they might do things differently here, uh, their approach? Oh, one of the things I loved, um, we went to Rutgers, and they had this amazing, very interactive website, um, and it was something simple as, I remember always wondering what an eject penis versus a non-eject penis looked like, um, and being afraid of it. 
because as somebody who is attracted to men who wants to engage in sexual activity with men an erect penis is a scary thing because all we know about sex is it's going to hurt when you're a girl that's all you hear you never hear about how it's going to feel good you never hear about how you're going to enjoy it you just hear that boys penises fill with blood and it's probably going to hurt and you probably shouldn't do it until you're married and it's going to hurt anyway um and that boys are sex machines and once they start having sex they probably won't be able to stop um, and so all of this unrealistic information that prevented me from really exploring that aspect of myself. And so when I went to Rutgers and I went to Nemo and I saw that they have this amazing interactive website that will literally let you watch a video of just a floating erection that's not pornography or let you touch different parts of the person's body, let you ask questions about being transgendered or homosexual, especially if you're not that. Especially if you just simply want to be able to ask questions. Um, I'm a pansexual woman myself and I have a lot of heterosexual friends that like to ask me questions primarily because they've never felt comfortable asking people questions. And so the sheer idea that they even have counselors whose sole job it is to come up to you and ask a question. You have little peep shows when you're 12 that you can go and see things. You can, at Nemo, they had these little balls and I got to put a testosterone, a testosterone ball on a boy and watch him get excited. And not like sexually, but just watch his hair grow, watch his body change and have a more profound understanding of it. It was a combination of clinical, but it also focused on the emotional. Um, and in America, when we talk about sex, it's very clinical. Like I have ovaries, I have a vagina, you have a penis, you have, and, and it goes inside, but we don't talk about the emotional implications. We don't talk about arousal. We don't talk about just pure attraction. Um, and we, if anything, make it taboo. And I have kids having sex in bathrooms at my middle school. Wow. And so there's an aspect that when I see things like the Nemo and the Rutgers website and some of the programs and the counseling, I would love to bring my kids into it because, um, I don't know if you knew this, but the United States is one of the only like first world countries that has a huge problem with adolescent pregnancy. I actually wrote a paper on it um, about it. It's like us, like Sub-Saharan Africa and like all of these other places. And then when you compare us to like Amsterdam and the UK or really even the European Union as a whole, they don't have nearly as much of an adolescent pregnancy issue that we have in the States. And I think a lot of that, for my research, has to do with the fact that we just don't educate our kids. Yeah, that's true. I, I agree with that. And I also agree with um, a comment you said earlier about uh, it being kind of fear-based uh, sexual education. Um, there's oftentimes the, um, uh, you know, everyone that's gone through sex ed in America, they've seen the pictures of um, what does gonorrhea look yes. like? What does uh, this... You never forget what chlamydia yeah. looks like when it happens to a vagina. <laughs> when they show you that picture, you're like, I will now never have sex. Yeah, yeah. Which, wow, well, is probably not the best way once you think about it um, uh, to go about teaching. And so, uh, is what have you learned uh, from here about their approach that you might want to bring back with you? Uh, well, I mean, I love the fact that you use the phrase bring back because I would love to bring back as much as I could. Mm -hmm. But because our system is so complicated, bringing something back to the American public school education program, it, um, I don't know how familiar you are with our, our current political system, but the head of our department of education is Betsy DeVos, who is a conservative Republican, extraordinary religious, who's invested a lot of money. She's a, a rich, wealthy billionaire who's invested a lot of money in conservative values. Um, and our vice president has actually, uh, he was the one that started the bathroom laws to preventing transgenders from using the bathrooms they want to use. So there's an aspect that the idea of being able to bring back anything, considering those two people value education, and I don't see me being able to bring back anything. Um, if I could bring back um, anything at all, I would love the aspects, and again, the Rutgers, even just the website. 
even if I could just get that website translated into English and change nothing else about it, right. I would love to give my kids that website. You know, uh, the Nemo Museum is amazing, but I know that's probably never going to happen. And one of the things I remember walking around the museum or even looking at the website is we would have protested. You would have had a million moms march and you would have had all of these organizations. We have an organization back home called Planned Parenthood and a very small percentage of what they do is abortions, but because they do them at all, we are up in arms. And none of the federal funding um, that our government has can go towards abortion. So the majority of what Planned Parenthood does is birth control, uh, STD screenings, cancer screenings. So they actually do a lot of women's health for low income, but we focus so much on the abortion aspect of it that everything else gets overshadowed. And I wanna say abortions make up less than 5% of what they do. So we judge that one organization for what less than 5% of them do. So the idea of being able to tell a, a 12 year old how to put a condom on um, does yeah. not seem to think. And again, that's part of the disconnect or dichotomy within our own country is we don't like taking care of the poor. Um, we don't want to educate people on how to have healthy, safe sex. Um, and we don't want to give people the option of having an abortion. So there's an aspect that part of our adolescent pregnancy has a lot to do with the fact that we've created an environment of low educated people, children, having a lot of children. Mm. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because, um, yeah, I feel like here um, the kind of level of education it starts seems to start from a very young age. Um, well, what we've heard discussed is uh, from the age of four to five, they even start uh, talking about sexuality and sex with, with children. And I'm just curious to hear your opinion on, on, on that. Well, um, so I, I have a little bit of bias in the sense I have a nephew who I'm obsessed with, and he, I am pretty sure, is a little girl on the inside, or, or gender neutral or gender binary, and he is six, or he will be six in October. And so there's an aspect, I use male pronouns with a child that I definitely think is female because a child hasn't told me that they're male. But because of that, the way that I talk to you know him about gender and sex is different than the way I would talk to a six-year-old because I want him to have an understanding that it is actually possible for him to be a little girl. Um, and so his parents were even telling me when him and his sister were much younger and I went to the restroom that, you know, little kids want to follow you. Like three-year-olds, they, they want to go in there with you and that I should just let them watch me pee. And I remember thinking, this is awful. And they're like, no, they're just going to be curious about it and it's fine. And there's an aspect of at least the way my friends are raising their children, they're raising them to not be afraid of their gender or to be afraid of their bodies or to question it. And so there's an aspect at one of those times I was on my period and I had explained to a three-year-old and a four-year-old what a period was. And I was way more concerned about their responses. Their response was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And right. I think there's an aspect of it because of that, it won't be taboo for them. Mm -hmm. It will be something that's just something that happens. I'm aware that it happens, and now I know about it. And I think if we were to have sex as a conversation like that from a very young age, it's this is something that happens. I don't have to explain to you what cowgirl is. You know, you don't have to know positions. You don't really need to fully understand what a condom is. But I can explain to you that there, you can have two mommies or you can have two daddies. And I can explain to you that you can have sex when you're in love with a person and you can be married, but you don't have to be married. But I could make it something that when you want to talk about it, you could, because there's an aspect of our culture that when children want to talk about sex, they talk to other children. And that is the worst possible place for you to get information from as a 12-year-old. You should never get information about something as important as sex from another 12-year-old because that other 12-year-old chose to have sex before they were ready. Right. And that's how a lot of our information is spread. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, I think that's probably how I got most of my information at that age as well, too. Um, which, yeah, it's you're completely right. It should be um, started from an earlier age. It should be uh, more open and honest, uh, not hidden. I think that does kind of add a layer of uh, being a, it being a taboo um, later on in life, as you mentioned as well, too. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the Dutch approach. And that's why I love uh, kind of being involved with this program, too, is because it does seem like uh, there's a lot to learn uh, for people, especially from the U.S., coming here uh, and that sort of exchange of ideas. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely value, and there's a lot that could be brought back. And uh, like you said, there are many barriers to that. Um, but, yeah, I guess, I guess we can only dream on and uh, yeah, I think the more eventually that people do kind of uh, have those kind of cultural exchanges, the more conversations they hear about it, um, the less uh, awkward and, that it will be. And the earlier you start with it, it feels like, uh, doesn't feel like the Dutch are at all kind of awkward about talking about these issues as, as well. What's What are your experiences with, with talking well, to Well, I, I had an opportunity. I, I found a lesbian bar, and I went to a, a lesbian bar here in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam, and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And when I was in there, there's people from, uh, there was a straight guy from Italy. Uh, there was a girl from Portugal. There's another one, a straight woman, I believe, from Argentina. A, a couple of locals, a woman from Chicago, a woman from Haiti. Um, and so there's just all of these women all converging and men um, at this one place and it was in that place and it, it might also have something to do with the fact that they're LGBTQI but we were able to talk about everything it was very comfortable mm-hmm. and there's this aspect of especially in Orlando we had the Pulse shooting so there's an aspect of gay culture that is and especially in America it's, there's a lot of rejection uh, there's a lot of fear there's a lot of phobia uh, I even had a friend one of the girls who went with us talked about how they have one gay bar in our hometown and sometimes people get beat up outside of the gay bar and, uh, and so there's an aspect of it in when I came here and I went to a lesbian bar and I had a couple of drinks and I, and I walked back I wasn't afraid and it is the little things that you take for granted and so when it was time to talk about sexuality and sexual orientation there's an aspect of it where I'm not concerned about being rejected. Um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question in the way that you intended for me to, but it is one of the most beautiful things I think about this culturally is when I'm in love, I want to come back to Amsterdam. And the reason that I say that is because it doesn't matter who I fall in love with, because I can fall in love with a white guy or a black woman or a trans guy, and whoever I fall in love with, I could come here and be welcome and included. And so, although I haven't had a lot of conversations with people about sex or sexual orientation, Everyone just seems so comfortable with everything else. And I've watched every couple I've just mentioned, I've seen. I have seen old and young people, black and white people, two guys, two girls walking up and down the city, holding hands, kissing like it's nothing. Um, And although I haven't had those direct conversations, I think culturally it's just amazing that you can feel so welcomed and invited to be who you are here. Hmm. So it it definitely seems like uh, the city has already had kind of a, a big impact on you. Absolutely. I, I would definitely say that. And uh, were there some of the uh, visits that we had this week that were very impactful to you as well? Well, I, I've talked an awful lot about Rutgers and email. Um, and of course, those were really just wonderful experiences. Uh, I'm Methodist home in Orlando, and I actually belong to uh, one of the largest Methodist churches in the state of Florida. And 
for me, I really enjoyed listening to the relationship the church had um, with homosexual population. Um, back home in the Methodist church, they're actually talking about splitting up. So our church might actually, the Methodists might actually split up for the group of them that are comfortable with having homosexuals being involved in the church, members of the church, even taking leadership roles in the church, and the ones who aren't. Um, and so listening to them talk about how in many ways it came from parents supporting their children and it came from pastors coming out and being like, you know what, we want to do more for the gay culture, that it was a top-down thing versus in America, I feel like it's almost bottom-down where our parents have rejected us but we're fighting back and our church has rejected us but we're fighting back. And in the Netherlands it seemed like, no, it was the other way. And it was it sounded like a more beautiful, loving experience. Definitely full of turmoil, definitely full of stress, definitely full of you know all of the negative things, but I loved the idea that people taking a look back and seeing. And I think also there's an aspect of the fact that the Netherlands has become more secular. Um, that might also have a large impact because although in America we say church and state are separate, in many ways that is not even close to being true about our culture. Uh, like it's it's in our money. If you look at a dollar bill, it says in God we trust. And we make our kids say it in the Pledge of Allegiance every single day at school. So, And you swear on a Bible when you're in a court. So there's an aspect of our country that, unlike the Netherlands, religion is so ingrained in who our culture is. Um, yeah, no, and uh, with that visit as well, it seemed like we learned a lot about uh, kind of the history and how uh, America kind of split apart uh, from Holland. The Pilgrim Fathers coming from England at that point, coming to Holland and finding it a little too liberal for their liking, and yes. then leaving um, to eventually found the original 13 colonies in the States as well, too. And um, yeah, I also found that extremely fascinating, and um, yeah, to see how the two cultures have kind of gone in different ways um, since then is, uh, it's, yeah, it's enlightening. And, it is. Uh, for me, kind of living over here, I've just been exploring that, uh, exploring for the last six years, uh, what it is, you know, uh, what it is culturally that has made them kind of um, different and why they are a little more open and honest about some of these things that in America where we, we are probably not as comfortable. Uh, I definitely think we're comfortable. I think also part of the issue with America is just the square footage. We're huge. Mm -hmm. So there's an aspect that you could be in Texas and feel completely different than somebody in Seattle, Washington. That's very true. You know? Yeah. And, I kind of have likened um, the Amer America to, to Europe in that uh, it depends where you live in Europe and also the climate yeah. uh, that you have. I, I feel like Northern Europe, Scandinavia is a bit like um, the Northern states in Minnesota, or uh, with Minnesota, Wisconsin, um, probably even Massachusetts as well. There's a little more liberal ideas going on in Northern climates. Southern climates like uh, Italy, um, Spain are a bit actually still uh, religious, more conservative, um, although throw in you know, completely different cultures, but there's probably something to be said about uh, weather and um, your ability to change or adapt, I would think, as well, too. Um, and we also offer, in similar similarities, we have a lot of autonomy in your state. Like our education system, I was educated in the state of Maryland, and I worked as an educator in the state of Florida. And education is very different in Maryland than it is Florida. You talk going top 10 or top 25 to bottom 10. And just seeing the vast differences in priorities and stuff like that. And for better or for worse, as a culture, we have decided that states 
get to dictate a lot of how they want to run their country. So because of that, it's legal to smoke marijuana in California, but Texas has bathroom laws, right? And San Francisco is a place, and there's gay pride, but in Indiana, you can just deny somebody service solely because you think they are gay. So there's an aspect of our culture that, depending on what time zone you're in or what zip code you're in, really, it's very different. Even in the state of Florida, um, we went Trump. A lot of people, when they think of Florida, think of Orlando and Disney World. That's where we are. You think of Miami. You think of the big cities. But Florida is such a big state that it's so easy to forget that we're a conservative state. That Orlando, where the pulse shooting happened, you have a prominent gay culture. You have gay pride. Even Disney does gay days. But then when you expand past that to... To land in Tallahassee and to the vast majority of the state, the state overwhelmingly went for Trump. We have a lot of conservatives. Our our governor is conservative in our house, and our um, Congress is conservative in Florida as well. And how would you compare the two uh, states as far as their educational systems? Oh, night and day. And and there's another aspect too is going back to my social economic status. Um, and there's an aspect of it. If I was to have been in Baltimore City at a, at a Title I rough neighborhood, I don't know if I'd have the same distinction. You know, I don't know if I could really say, like, so if I went to, I, I work at a church again, my church is a wealthy church in the state of Florida for Methodists. So when I go there, their education is completely different than the kids I work with. So I volunteer a lot with my youth group. And when I listen to what they're learning and how they're being taught and how they're being educated and what they're stressed out about, those kids can read and write and will be very successful through a public school education from the state of Florida. I got kids who live 30 minutes away from them who will not do that as well. And so when I compare the two education programs together, yes, it is night and day, but my middle school, for example, could afford a health teacher, a home ec teacher, a shop teacher, a band teacher, an orchestra teacher, and a choir teacher, and an art teacher. And my current middle school has a tech teacher and an art teacher. Wow. And a band teacher, yeah. So no health teacher, no orchestra, no choir. Um, so just the sheer amount of things that my middle school was able to offer me more options than this one is. I had a JV and varsity mock trial team and a drama club. And my middle schoolers don't have a drama club or a mock trial team. Hmm. So. Yeah, no, it's, it seems like um, the more people I talk to from America, it seems like the larger disparity there is in education. And uh, when, I, when I'm living here, I have the feeling like most people are, are very well educated. Uh, I mean, there are some people that I encountered that are not, but I feel like the spectrum is a little bit closer together here. Like, in America, you can have the opportunity to have like the brightest person in the world, but you can also have the opportunity to have the dumbest person in the world, and I think we have everyone in between. Here, it's more like, you have extremely smart to like... Mm, average. Average, yeah. Well, I mean, like, for example, Kentucky has a, a literacy problem. Um, and when you, an adult literacy problem, just to clarify that. And so when you look at like when Mitch McConnell, and I can't remember the name of the opponent that was running against him for the Democratic Party, when they were running for Congress, they talked about a lot of things, but they didn't talk about their literacy issue. Um, and so there's an aspect too of our culture that we don't really focus on stuff like education. And education is very much separated by your state. Your state can very much, so in some states, like again, in my, in my high school, I did get some sex ed, but it was all clinical. Um, and I had a health teacher, and she actually brought me in and, and taught me about sex ed, and I had a class for it and everything. I did it for a whole semester. Um, I did it a couple of times. In the state of Florida, my kids don't have that. 
Um, and so there's an aspect of our education system that it's almost like we, we have a federal organization to monitor it and we have a department chair to monitor it, but in many ways, we allow individuals to kind of decide how we educate them. Um, and that is a very scary thing in the sense that it shouldn't, if someone comes from Florida or comes from Massachusetts and they go to London, they should be able to, based on intellect, should be around the same if they went to college. And it's not very true there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell a lot about a person's education based solely on what state they're at. Oh, that's true. Uh, uh, let me just have a quick look through my questions here, see if there's anything no, more pressing that I want to ask you. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, so we also had a visit uh, this week from uh, Dr. Wecker, and she mm-hmm. had presented a... White Innocence. Her, her, yeah, White Innocence, her book. And I'd just like to get your take on um, what she had to say this week. As well. I found a lot of things she said very poignant and very interesting, um, especially because I've given a lot of thought to white privilege. Um, so in America, at least to my interpretation of the term, white privilege usually refers to um, historically Caucasian or white individuals unaware of the benefits they've had solely because they are white. So the it's not so much that because you're white, like Donald Trump, you're rich. It doesn't necessarily mean that or that you're very comfortable. It could mean that you're a middle class guy who when you apply for a job, you're not concerned that your name will get you rejected. When you're If you're driving your car and you're going 10 miles over the speed limit, you're not concerned about a police officer pulling you over. If you're walking down New York, you're not concerned about getting stopped and frisk. You're not concerned about a boss sexually harassing you at work. Um, you're not concerned about going and holding the hands of someone you love and being beat up for it. So, and we call that white privilege. And in many ways, she was describing something very similar in white innocence. And I really liked that terminology because I think white privilege makes it sound like somehow you being a middle-class heterosexual man means your life is better than everybody else's. And it's not the best terminology because it, it's incendiary. You know, you can say, well, I've struggled, I've worked very hard for everything I've done, I don't feel like I am privileged, and I think that's been a huge disconnect in our culture, is people get so focused on the word privileged that they don't really understand that it's not so much that you haven't worked hard or earned things, it's that if you look at it like you're on a track, white people might be running a sprint, and other minorities are running a marathon. And there's an aspect, when you're running a marathon, you might have finished first, but you didn't start at the same place. And so I really liked her terminology of white innocence because I felt like it was a, a better description of that word and kind of what we're also seeing a lot of in our own country. Right. And um, as a person of color walking around here, have you felt anything differently than you felt in the I haven't. Um, but one of the things that was explained to me too, um, although there's a lot of people of color here, um, but also to be aware of the fact that I'm an American person of color. And there's an aspect that being an American person of color is different than being a person of color from a different country. Um, so if I was a person of color, maybe from Morocco or Indonesia, the way that my experiences would be, it could have been very different being a person of color from America. Great. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, let me just go through my notes here. Oh, uh, it sounds like uh, you have a great ability to make friends, and it sounds like you're going to be doing some independent travels here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, what kind of made you want to do some of those independent travels, and are you at all uh, worried about uh, travel? I, so what made me want to do the independent travel was uh, I'm turning 30. My God, I'm calling it my renaissance, and I've always wanted to travel. And there's been an aspect, especially since I started doing AmeriCorps, um, that I've just been pushing myself to do things that I'm afraid of, but I've always wanted to do. So I've been afraid of focusing on working with poor kids, but I've always wanted to do it, so I'm doing it. And 
I have always wanted to travel but afraid to go on my own and it wasn't that I was planning to go on my own it's that nobody was willing to come with me and it became a point where I had a choice to make I could either go on my own or not go or just stay while I was in Amsterdam you know just stay with the group and I realized I will never have this chance again. I have the summer off because I was teaching, um, but this time next year I start grad school. Uh, the year after that, I need to start moving to Georgia to prepare for in-state tuition. The year after that, I will be in law school and that will go on for the next four years. So there's an aspect of this trip can happen right here, right now. I have this moment in time and I have a million reasons why not to go, but I have an extraordinarily amazing reason to go and that's because I want to. That's awesome, and uh, for me, that's kind of how it happened. Was just kind of um, yeah, had a million reasons to travel, but also a million reasons not to. People didn't want to go with me. I just decided to go and do it, and uh, to study abroad is kind of how I got into it. And uh, I think ever since then, it's it's been a great journey, and I've continually kind of looked for those types of experiences. And for me, it's uh, only been beneficial. Um, to kind of uh, go abroad, learn a lot about a different place, um, and it seems like you kind of have that um, uh, idea in your head as well too. And so I wish you luck on your travels. Thank you. Um, I know you're gonna uh, do great out there. And very uh, easy to talk to, and uh, we've got a kind of a, a loud bar scene going on behind us right now. Um, they are throwing so peanuts. You can't see throwing, it, but they're definitely throwing peanuts at each yes. other. Dutch group has arrived. Yes, they look like they look like footballers. They 100% look like footballers throwing oh, yeah. peanuts at each other. For sure, yeah, for sure. They just got done watching a game uh, yeah. of soccer, and uh, we are now at the bar. Um, so I think on that note, maybe we'll wrap things yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Alicia, for talking with me uh, today, and uh, wish you the best of luck on your travels. Um, it was a pleasure to meet you and to get to know you on this trip. And um, yeah. No, maybe thank you we'll, so much for having me. This yeah. is great. Maybe we'll run into you down the road oh, as well. we will. I'm going to sleep on your couch one day. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> right. You're welcome. Okay. So I guess that is episode number one in the books. Man, feels good to kind of get the first one out of the way. I'm looking forward to bringing back a few more of these. And um, I'm only hoping to get better, like I said, at the interviews and with, um, you know, some of the noise in the background, perhaps I'll get rid of some of that. Or maybe you like it. I don't know. Um, so yeah, this is uh, going to be an ongoing thing, and um, hope to uh, show you some different parts of the world. Uh, like I said, I've been guiding trips. Uh, I've been lucky to guide some of these educational trips around the world, and I really think it's beneficial uh, for the people that that go on these trips. Uh, it seems to be kind of a, a life-changing thing. Uh, it shows them that there are other possibilities out there. There's not just one way to uh, to do something um, and depends what that subject is but the further you look into it um, the more you realize hey wait why is this country doing it like this why are they excelling in this area why is this country seem a little bit happier um, why you know uh, so we answer we try to answer a lot of those questions um, on these trips and so yeah, if you're interested, head on over, like I said, to thepsychologist.org uh, to check out uh, some of the adventures that we have coming up as well. And I'm going to play you out with a song from a friend of mine's band um, back from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where 
where I'm originally from. Um, this is a band called uh, Cloud Cult, uh, who I was uh, lucky enough to meet up with here also in Europe when they came over a few years back um, to record one of their shows over there too. So, um, yeah, I'm playing you out with uh, Through the Ages from Cloud Cult. Until next time. If life is a story we're meant to live through, then both me and you are the pages. I'll tell you a tale, and most of it's true. You see, I came here for you through the ages.